This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. All living cells are made up of protein molecules, but how do they organise themselves into structures? We try to purify the components and then we see how they self-organise in beautiful spherical spirals or waves and so on and we try to really control what kind of patterns emerge. Plus bee sex, tough mice and a happily married gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for November 2013 with me, Dr. Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. This month I'm reporting back from the Genetic Society Autumn Meeting, which took place at the Royal Society in London. Called Genes to Shape, the talks brought together researchers ranging from mathematicians and physicists to developmental biologists to discuss how biological shapes are created. To hear more about the idea behind the meeting, and for his summary of the proceedings, I spoke to one of the co-organisers, Professor Buzzbaum from UCL, whose own lab works on cell shape and movement. I think since DNA was discovered and the genome sequence, there's really been a lot of emphasis on the gene level and how genes control um, things. And as we know, that's important because you take identical twins, they look very similar it's as embryos, as young adults, and as people, and old people even. Uh, so genes, if you have an identical gene, you really do have identical phenotype in animals. In plants, obviously, very different. But so genes have a big influence. But I think, in a way, the path from gene, which is information, to form, to shape, to us, is a very complicated, long journey where lots of interesting things happen. I think what's happened in the community and what this meeting was about is that, in a way, trying to understand as you cross the scales from the small bits of information that is in the, you know, is ATGs and Cs, the tiny code in the middle of a cell, how that is translated into these amazing large objects, beautifully formed flowers and things which we see in the macroscopic world. And it's very complicated. And to understand those processes, you can't just do the conventional kind of science that biologists are taught. You can't just take genes and remove them and, and see, you know, you can see what goes wrong, but to understand the process, how you get from small to big, growth, for example, uh, and cell shape changes, you really need to start using tools from the physical sciences, which is why we have so many theorists here and physicists who are using, we're using, you know, using logical, simple models, uh, formulated very simply, and then simulations and um, mathematics to try to see when you put simple elements together what you get out. And what I found was really interesting is I've been to a lot of genetics meetings where, like you say, people they look at one gene that's faulty and they find you know you have a, a smaller mouse or a bigger dog or something like that. This was going right down to the molecular level, the cellular level. What for you really struck you about some of the talks today? Well, to me, the first talk was was the brilliant choice of first talk. <laughs> so I'm very glad to Andreas because he's brilliant. Was um, really showing how if you take a thing we understand well, you take machines which regulate cell shape, actin and myosin, two machines. We know exactly what they do. They've been studied for decades. We know exactly molecular behaviour, the, the physical parameters about them. You put them together and you change the amount of filaments. You get behaviours that are extraordinary and people, Andreas doesn't understand how they arise, these beautiful things. And it shows that 
you know, simple rules can generate fabulous kind of behaviours. In a way, in biology, how can you reconcile these self-organising things that you happen in tornadoes, like we heard about, there's one in the Philippines this week, devastating its self-organising wind system. We see that's in a bit what is happening in the actin filaments. But biology, as I said, you have a genome and two identical twins are identical. So biology is a lot about how the genome is taming and using self-organisation. And so to me, that's a theme that runs across this tension between genes and self-organisation. The Mendel uh, Prize winner, Stan Liebler, is he comes from physics and he just looks at the essence of things and looking at things like hereditary and non-hereditary um, factors in determining organism behavior and population, eco ecological behavior, you know, really new ways of thinking about um, complexity in life science and how much of it is just direct control, like computer programs, which is often where we used to think, versus self-organization. And the mixture between the two is where I think life arises, which is sort of, I think, is, is why the meeting was very alive, in fact, for that reason. What for you was the one thing that stood out that made you go, wow, that's fascinating, or that's weird? Well, when I heard about molecular biology, which I work in, and, and, and single gene research, you never get a wow factor because it doesn't mean anything. You find a gene that regulates even cancer. So what? Why that gene? What does it matter? You know? But a lot of the biology here in this meeting is inspired by what is inspiring about nature you look at it and the forms are beautiful the dynamics are almost inexplicable and trying to tease apart those life processes in all these different talks i think almost every talk did that that's why we chose these people because i think that's this is biology and i think that's what's so what would that you know all of it's amazing i mean life is amazing you look at a hand or a leaf or a, a seed or any <laughs> anything it's, it's all it's all pretty wow that's why i'm a scientist in the uk at the moment you know the public are interested in science and, and it's because it is wondrous and i think people don't feel as excluded and i think in the audience too we don't feel as excluded now Physicists are not excluding from biology, and biologists are not excluding from using modelling. And I think it's a nice time where we can all go, wow, and then also stop and try to understand how things work, which is hard, but that's what's fun. Um, it's not demystifying, I think. It doesn't take the magic out of the stars to understand them, and it doesn't take the magic out of development. We don't have to worry about demystifying nature. It, we will never understand it, but we can get close, and I enjoy that. I think the meeting showed a lot of people getting close but also showing what is not known was also clear in many talks in this way. We heard talks ranging from the shape of snapdragons to tiny molecules moving around to the inner ear of zebrafish, yeah. all sorts of things. What would be your take-home message from this meeting? I mean, in a way, you know, it's partly we've invited people we like to hear and, and people we like to be up to date with. And I think a lot of the research is exemplifies what I think is good science. And I think it's not, not all science is good. There's a lot of bad science, I would say. No, I mean, because it's hard. It's hard to do it well. And I think um, it's a bit of a lesson for me is a lot of these talks are lessons how to do science, how to define a problem well, to set up an experimental system where it's tractable, dig deeper and understand more. And, and, and it can take 20 years, but you, you've got ways to really um, make progress. We should all, you know, not, not sit down with the problem that we've been told to study. We should think about what's important, about what's interesting in life and what we think is a fascinating problem. If we're going to spend our time and night and day thinking about things, we should choose something we think is a, a deep, important problem, a beautiful problem, and think about what's the best way to do it, not go to our you know, catalogue and order what's easy to order, but think hard about 
let's find a tractable way to address a beautiful, interesting problem. That was Professor Buzz Baum from UCL. Congratulations to the winner of this year's Genetic Society Mendel Medal, Professor Stan Liebler, whose fascinating presentation about making mathematical models of complex biological systems we heard mentioned there. In his talk, he described how he and his team are taking small model ecosystems made up of bacteria, algae and single-celled animals, tracking them as they evolve and trying to construct mathematical models that describe them. His work is helping to shed light on the processes and rules that underpin evolution, just as the medal's namesake, Mendel, did back in the 19th century. Now let's hear more from one of the other talks Buzz mentioned, from Professor Andreas Bausch from the Technical University of Munich in Germany. He's trying to understand how patterns and structures form in nature and showed some beautiful and striking movies of simple molecules coming together to create all kinds of shapes that move around. I asked him to explain how he and his team generated those stunning images from simple biological molecules. So my model systems is uh, the cytoskeleton, which is a polymer network instead of salts. And we try to purify the components and then we see how they self-organize in beautiful spherical spirals or kind of waves and so on. And we try to really control what kind of patterns emerge. Can you tell me a little bit more about the cytoskeleton? What, what is it inside cells? So uh, this is a polymer network which makes the cell stiff and, and gives the cell the shapes. It's almost like a scaffold inside the cell. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a scaffold and, and it's responsible for all kind of processes of cell division, cell migration, uh, transport inside of cells. So, so it's a rather universal polymer network and there's a lot of physics behind it. And I think the beauty here is that there, there a lot of physical concepts and, and measurement techniques are necessary to explore this kind of very complicated polymer network. And uh, it's much more complicated than all the polymer networks which we know on a daily basis. <laughs> um, so uh, like, like the so that's trivial compared to the complexity we have in salts and that's that's actually what is life about so that you have high complexity and high integration density of, of functionality on this very small scale to have all these functions on this very small length scales. So what do you do in your lab to, to study these these very very complex systems? The idea is that we go from a bottom-up approach where we purify components and add step-by-step -step complexity and control the complexity, which is kind of completely different than traditional biology would do it, where they come from a cell or organism and go down. Uh, we try to really be on the physics approach where we really add the complexity step-by-step. -step. So you're starting with the, with the building blocks of the scaffold, putting them all in a test tube and seeing what happens? Yeah, basically that's what we do. We, we, we mix and watch. Uh, we saw some beautiful, beautiful things. Tell me about some of the patterns you see. So we, we, we see uh, spirals, for example, where they move around, or the galaxy forms where you get density waves in a spiral. You see waves like, like ocean waves walking over cover slide. And the amazing thing is that we span a lot of length scales. So the width of single filaments are seven nanometer, and the hoop patterns are up to centimeters. So this is unheard of length scales you're spanning here. Uh, where you get really kind of higher order structures out of very small interaction at very long, small length scales. And uh, then we see also vesicle shapes where we have spherical objects which change their shape into citrons or scallops or whatever. So there's all kind of a zoo of, uh, of different patterns and, and, and forms which we have here. And that's, I guess, uh, the fascinating shapes. Where that's the fascinating thing here. Sometimes it can be hard to think, how do we go from the information on our genes, it makes proteins, and then it organizes into these amazing structures. But looking at your images, you kind of start to see how, how life might work. 
Yeah, I guess we are on the upper end from the gene expression. So, so we don't think about genes expression and the regulation of the gene expression. We have already the proteins. And if you just let two or three proteins interact, you start to emerge, uh, the shapes emerge and, and, and patterns and dynamics emerges. And that's the fascinating thing here. So, so and, and the goal is evidently that we already want to mimic some real processes like cell division or cell migration in a test tube with purified components. That's the ultimate goal we have here. What's the weirdest thing you've seen uh, in, in the results that you've got? Oh, the weirdest feel, uh, thing, I guess they are all were weird the first time we saw them because they all were unexpected. And the, the, the most fascinating, I think, these days is now these vesicles which change shape in a very actually deterministic way, which we never expected, and, and, and in a very kind of uh, mathematically poor way, which nobody would have expected because it should be unordered. So we see kind of pure physics and pure mathematics coming out from a very complicated four-component system, and that's kind of fascinating. As some people say, biology, is, it's really just applied physics. Do you think we can break down uh, the amazing process of life to physical rules one day? I guess that's exactly what's happening right now, and I think we need much more physics coming into this uh, complexity of biology to really break down principle to principles and identify principles behind it. I think these experiments I showed are examples where you see that there is some hope that we can come up with some minimalistic systems where you see that already three or four components do a function, and in nature and real biology you may have. 10 or 20 proteins doing that, but four with a defined function are enough to do it. And then you, you would have understood quite a bit already. That was Professor Andreas Bausch from the Technical University of Munich. And now it's time for a roundup of this month's genetics news. Sex just got a bit more complicated. Well, for bees at least. Researchers at the University of Cologne have discovered that the genes responsible for determining whether a bee is a queen, a female worker or a male drone are more complex than previously thought publishing their findings in the journal Molecular Biology and Evolution. Male drone honeybees hatch from eggs that have not been fertilised, while female workers come from fertilised ones. In addition, female workers inherit two different copies of a gene called CSD, and these copies must be sufficiently different for the female bee to develop and thrive. Until now, there were thought to be about 20 different versions of CSD, but now the researchers think there may be as many as 145 worldwide, which evolved in a relatively short period of time. The scientists think that the rapid production of this large number of variations helps to ensure a high level of genetic diversity in bee colonies and could help to prevent inbreeding. Swiss scientists have made a step forward in understanding how resistance to HIV could be encoded within our own genes, according to a new paper in the journal eLife. Every person infected with HIV mounts some kind of immune response to the virus, and some people can even hold the infection at bay without taking antiviral drugs. The researchers, led by Jacques Vallée, traced how HIV viruses sampled from more than a thousand infected people had genetically changed over time in response to attacks by the immune system, looking at more than 3,000 mutations. Then they also mapped the gene variations in the human genome that might be responsible for fighting back. Importantly, the researchers had to look at data from samples taken before there were effective HIV treatments to make sure they were only focusing on the natural effects of the immune system, so they had to trawl databases from the 1980s. It's the biggest global overview to date of the genes involved in HIV resistance, and scientists think that their results could one day lead to more effective, genetically personalised therapies. It's long been known that young animals recover from injuries quicker than older ones. 
from insects and fish to mammals, including ourselves. But what's not known is why or how this happens. Now researchers from Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in the US have found a gene that seems to be responsible, publishing their findings in the journal Cell. The researchers suspected that a gene called LIN28A, which is very active in embryos from many species but shut down in adults, may be playing a role in the phenomenon. To find out, they reactivated the gene in adult mice and discovered that these animals could grow their hair back faster after shaving and had quicker wound healing. LIN28A is involved in activating processes involved in energy production and use within cells, known as metabolism, and the researchers found that they could bypass the need to switch the gene on by using drugs that directly stimulate cell metabolism. The researchers speculate that LIN28A, or drugs that work in a similar way to it, could form part of a healing cocktail that could help restore youthful healing properties to older adults, potentially opening up exciting possibilities for fixing injuries, healing wounds or treating other diseases. If you've ever had athlete's foot, you've had a fungal infection. Such infections are common and easily cleared up with over-the-counter antifungal drugs. But in rare cases, such usually harmless fungal infections can get beneath the skin and spread to the bones, the gut, the immune system and even the brain, causing a condition called deep dermatophytosis, which can be fatal. Writing in the New England Journal of Medicine, scientists at the Rockefeller University in the US and Necker Medical School in Paris have now discovered a gene fault that allows the fungus to spread in this way. To find the faulty gene, called CARD9, the researchers looked at DNA from 17 people who had succumbed to deep dermatophytosis but were otherwise healthy with normal functioning immune systems. Previous research suggested CARD9 might be the suspect and the scientists found it was faulty in all 17 of the patients. The scientists think their finding explains why fungal infections sometimes spread into the body and why they can be so hard to treat when they do. In the case of families that carry the gene fault, this could lead to genetic testing as well as prevention advice and targeted treatments. And it also lends weight to the idea that genetic variations between people make the difference between some people being able to shrug off minor infections while others fall seriously ill. And finally, researchers led by Ashley Rowe in the US have reported that little grasshopper mice are resistant to the painful effects of the highly toxic venom of bark scorpions, thanks to a genetic quirk. Bark scorpion stings can kill other mammals of a similar size, yet it seems to act as a painkiller in grasshopper mice rather than a toxic poison. Writing in the journal Science, the researchers went into the desert to collect mice and scorpions, testing the effects of injecting either scorpion toxin or saltwater placebo into the animal's paws. But rather than licking their paws in response to the toxin, the usual pain response for these mice, they licked them less than when injected with saltwater. By looking at the gene sequences for the receptor molecules that respond to the toxin, the researchers discovered a single crucial difference between the receptors in the grasshopper mice and those in other mammals that do feel pain from the scorpion stings. The change is enough to turn the toxin from a pain causer to a pain killer. The scientists still don't know why the grasshopper mice don't get poisoned by the stings, but they do hope their discovery could lead to better ways to develop painkillers for humans rather than mice. And if you want to find out more about those stories, the references are all on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be finding out whether scientists could invent a distant DNA scanner. 
But now it's time to hear more from the Genetic Society Autumn Meeting, from genes to shape. Professor Ray Goldstein from the University of Cambridge studies how molecules organise themselves inside cells, focusing in particular on a plant-like algae called cara. I asked him to describe to me what you can see inside the surprisingly large cells of these plants if you look down a microscope. You'd see a beautiful stately flow of about up to a tenth of a millimetre per second. Sounds ridiculously slow, but by biological standards that's fast. Uh, in a kind of barber pole arrangement, uh, two helical bands of flow, one going up the cell, one going down the cell, in this uh, beautiful regular pattern. Uh, and you'd see various organelles within the cell being carried along by this streaming, driven by the action of motor proteins that walk along filaments. Uh, so, for instance, myosin walking along actin or uh, kinesin walking along microtubules and carrying cargo of one sort or another. And the, the, the action of moving that cargo entrains fluid. And because there's some kind of long-range order in the filaments, uh, one sees an ordered pattern of one degree or another in the fluid flow. So we're not talking about just fluid sloshing about inside a big cell. This is a very, very organized system. Well, there are two basic types. There are those that are super highly organized, regular geometric structures, and there are others that are more disordered, such as in uh, the oocyte of the fruit fly, which is one commonly studied uh, situation. But even there, uh, it's not completely disordered. Uh, the microtubules that drive it are organized from the cell periphery, and, and although it looks, uh, it looks a bit turbulent or chaotic uh, to the eye, there is structure in it anyway. So it's, it is a structured flow to some degree or another. So what's the question that your work's trying to answer? Our work on cytoplasmic streaming is fundamentally aimed at understanding its role in biology. There's been a lot of work over the centuries in visualizing it and quantifying it, but there's still not a clear indication of its purpose. Uh, that is, is it to mix the contents of the cell? Is it a byproduct of a transport process? It's very unclear, so we're trying to unravel this step by step. So you can almost imagine this little army of proteins marching things around the cell. How do you study them and, uh, and how do you tell what they're up to? Well, the first thing is uh, one can visualize the flow independent of the driving force by having tracer particles of one sort or another. So they give you a direct readout of what the fluid flow is doing, but it's also possible uh, to, to label the various agents going on here and, and actually to have a direct uh, visualization in one sense or another of the cargo. The fascinating thing about these kind of systems, the flows and all these things, is that they are completely directed within the cell by itself. They're self-organizing. What are the clues that we have so far about how these work? Well, I would say that in the case of uh, large plant cells, which is the one that I've been focusing on most, um, there are tantalizing experimental observations that show that you can disrupt the underlying network of uh, the filaments and when the chemicals that do that disruption are removed the system can heal itself and reform the pattern of streaming uh, perhaps with a different precise origin and all of that but but it's the same basic pattern just shifted around a bit and that already speaks to self-organization uh, we also know that as uh, some of these cells grow the pattern changes in a systematic way and this suggests that you know, there's a very clear direction going on, but, but, uh, but again, these uh, further indicate self-organization process. Um, and in the case of uh, the more disordered flows, um, we, we have uh, changes that occur during development that uh, really speak to a uh, self-organization process. Uh, some chemical that was uh, present in large quantities at this point in time disappears, and then all of a sudden a new pattern emerges.
And how widely across biology do we see these properties of self-organisation at this kind of level happening? Well, um, without being too cliched, I think that it's fair to say that self-organisation occurs on length scales ranging from a few microns to a few kilometres. Uh, you can look at wildebeest on the plains of the Serengeti and you can see uh, self-organisation into a coherent locomotion. Uh, you can see it in locust swarms, you can see it in bacteria in a petri dish, and you can see it inside a single cell. Now it's wrong to just imagine that there's some single underlying mechanism crossing all those length scales, but the mathematical structure of a theory that would explain it uh, can have some commonality. And how close are we to coming up with these kind of theories, or is it just very complicated? I think we're actually fairly close uh, because certain model systems allow us to make measurements uh, to test in detail the predictions of a theory, and so we can apply what's uh, known as the scientific method. Here we are in the Royal Society where Newton uh, was so prominent, and uh, it's thanks to him we really use the scientific method. We can use that and go back and forth between theory and experiment in a way that was not possible 10 or 15 years ago, thanks to technological advances of imaging and microscopy. Now, some of the work uh, that we've heard about today, it's, it's looking at very specialised model systems, very rarefied things, or, or single cells. Do you think one day we will be able to describe the organisation, for example, of, of an embryo, a, a human embryo, as it goes from one cell to many, and all the things that move around there? I certainly think we all believe so, uh, and we tend to be very reductionist, so we start with simpler things where we, we, we think we'd have more capacity to understand all that's going on. Uh, but it's remarkable how much progress has been made it mostly is a question of courage, I think. It, we just have to sort of launch down the path and, and try to figure out what it is we need to measure and what a model, a mathematical model, would look like and how to test it and go back and forth. And for you, what are the questions that you still really want to answer? What, what are the known unknowns for you? The known unknown would be basically uh, the question of the purpose of streaming. Of course, it may not have a single purpose, but basically, why have cells engineered these large-scale flows are the flows themselves just byproducts of a transport process or uh, do they play a particular role in the self-organization that happens? This is often the case, uh, it appears to be, in, in development of the body plan of higher organisms. Uh, and we'd really like to have a connection between the microscopic action of the motor proteins that go whizzing along these filaments and, and the flows that we see. It's, it's not a very straightforward uh, connection because fluid mechanics is complicated and the microscales are hard to see, but those are the burning questions. That was Professor Ray Goldstein from Cambridge University. And now it's time to look at your genetics questions. Listener Liam asks, could you ever use some kind of scanner to scan someone for their DNA without physically touching them? To answer, here's DJ de Kerning, who's Professor at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. As far as I can imagine and look into the future, I think we will always need some form of sample from the person or organism we are trying to determine a genotype or DNA sequence for. But we need very little material these days and I think all of us leave a lot of our DNA lying around without realizing it from which the DNA could be isolated because we only need a single cell. So. We can isolate DNA from a razor, a comb, a toilet sample, you name it. There's probably quite a bit of your DNA around you where you have been sitting or where you have been blowing your nose, something like that. So it may not need contact or conscious sample taking, 
but uh, you do need something that was once part of you to do DNA work. Thanks to DJ De Koning and also our listener Liam. And if you've got any questions about genes, DNA, genetics you want us to answer, email them to me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. And finally, our gene of the month is in search of the perfect union. It's called matrimony. Found in fruit flies, the protein made from the matrimony gene is stockpiled in female flies' egg cells, known as oocytes, together with another protein called cortex. It's responsible for holding together the chromosomes in the egg cells until they're ready to divide when the egg gets fertilised. The protein quickly vanishes once fertilisation happens, as it gets broken down and destroyed. Fly eggs with excessive levels of matrimony can't develop properly, suggesting that getting just the right levels of the protein is essential for making healthy new flies. If you're feeling less like a happy marriage, then you could always turn to the gene named after one of the unluckier wives in history. The biblical character Lot's wife is supposed to have turned back to look at her hometown of Sodom as she was fleeing from its destruction and was turned into a pillar of salt. The fruit fly gene Lot's wife, also known as drop dead, is responsible for a range of jobs, including how the animals respond to very salty conditions. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month with more from the Genetic Society Autumn Meeting. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page, that's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and it's online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes. Genetics.